another point. Prayer point. In the name of Jesus. And so shall it be in Jesus' mighty name. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. And so shall it be in Jesus' mighty name. In the name of Jesus. And so shall it be in Jesus' mighty name. One more time. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise to your feet. We'll take one more prayer point. Just one more prayer point. Turn your Bibles with me to Proverbs 26, 27. And what I want us to pray is simply is I've been looking for this scripture for a while. We're going to pray what we call a return to sender prayer. And um, I like to pray with scripture. So I waited until I found the scripture. So I found the scripture. For you had marked it in my Bible. It is a very good scripture to pray a return to sender prayer. Proverbs 26, 27. Let us read together if you are all there. One, two, go. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein. And he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. One more time. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein. And he that rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. So let's just pray that every evil plan that the enemy has sent towards us, that he should just go back to the sender. Lift up your voices and pray. Lord, every device, every plan of the enemy that's against me, Lord, Lord, let it just return from whence it has come. For your word says, Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall in it. Whoso rolleth a stone, it will return upon him. So every problem, every hindrance, every plan that the enemy, Almighty God, has hatched up against me, Lord, let it return back to the enemy. Lord, let it return back to the enemy. Lord, we use your word, O Lord. We stand before you. Hasten your word to perform your word, Lord. Hasten, hasten your word to perform it, Lord. Bakato robo sheke tanayada. Balaza kumeluzo kumasha tanayada. Yesi tiza patanayada. Bazakuru tanayada. Bala bala. Lord, He's a higher than any other. 
We remember today, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you with all our being. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Lord, I am grateful. Not only have you died for us, you have chosen us. Yet, because your word says, no man can come unto the Father except but by you. Lord, we thank you for choosing us. Thank you for making it possible for us to come to you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for that which you have done in our lives that we do not see yet. Thank you for the words that we have shared today. Lord, we thank you for, for your body that was broken for us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. For I have received of the, of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take it. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let us all eat together.
Lord, we just lift up our voices and we join the heavenly host. And we say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which world that needs and needs to come. Blessed be your name, O Lord. Lord, we bless you from the depth of our being. We bless you from the bottom of our heart. Jesus, we thank you. You who died on our behalf. Blessed be your name. Glory and honor be unto you. O Holy Spirit of the living God, we thank you today for glorifying Jesus in us. Oh, we exalt you and bless you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Please see that we will take one testimony, then we'll go. The message you are about to hear is brought to you by the word and sound ministry of the redeemed Christian Church of God. God bless you as you listen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we bless your holy name. It is you, Lord, that we have come to meet with here today. Lord, even so, rend the heavens and come down and be with us. Lord, may your word bless us today. May your word enrich our lives. May there be deliverance. May there be healing, almighty God. Lord, make us doers of the word we shall hear today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, I believe. We are looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to the seven churches in in Asia Minor. Today we are going to look at the third letter. That's the letter to the church in Pergamos. And to the angel, that's Revelation chapter 2, I'll read from verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against thee with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give, a, give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth. Let's just make sure that we, 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 we switch off some of our things, because like as usual, it is addressed to the angel of the church in Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Right. Now let's spend some few minutes and just find out a bit about the church in Pergamos. Because Pergamos 
like Smyrna was a place known for idol worship. It had four temples built on a hill. The first temple was to the Greek goddess Athena. The second temple was to the Greek god of wine, Dionysius. The third temple was actually built for, in honor of a man, the Roman Emperor Augustus. And then there was the most imposing of all the four temples which was built to the chief of the Greek gods, Zeus. Um, I've seen a picture of that temple, the, the temple that was built to Zeus. I'm going to try and explain a few things about it today because it's so amazing. I wish it was possible for me to show you the, the photograph. It tells you something. It tells you that Lucifer was once in heaven. It tells you clearly that he has been cast down. And it tells you clearly that he sees himself as a king. It's amazing. Now this, this temple that was built to Zeus was very amazingly shaped like a huge, very massive armchair. It was like a throne. And the dimensions were 90 feet by 90 feet. 90 feet all around square. And <laughs> it's so interesting. It had a staircase. In other words, you have to go up the stairs to get to the, this huge armchair of a temple. It wasn't a temple that had a covering. The covering was the sky, as it were. And that staircase itself was 20 feet high. And in the middle of this structure was an altar. For those who have been reading every, um, cover to cover, you'll understand what I'm talking about. There was an altar and there was incense and offering going up 24 hours a day. You know, that's the same thing that was happening in the tabernacle. The, the, the flame was not to ever go out. Now, the, the, the temple is still available for seeing today because the Germans had gone to Asia Minor and taken the temple stone by stone and taken it to East Berlin where they, they put it back together stone by stone and it's in a huge museum. That's all that is housed there. And they say that the Christians in East Berlin are praying that they will take the temple back because they know that it's something really, really um, demonic. You need to see the photograph to understand um, that there is only one being could design something like that. And that being must have seen something similar somewhere. You know, because when you talk about a temple, you talk of something that has a covering. This had no covering. And it was just like a huge chair, like a big throne. And it has, and if you remember, if you look at Ezekiel, one of the things about Lucifer was that he was the one that was allowed to go up and down the staircase of God's throne. So this temple also had a 20-foot high staircase. So that definitely 
I mean, just, just seeing that picture tells me clearly that all these things that we are talking about, they are more real than people can ever, ever imagine. And Zeus was the chief god of all the Greek gods. So, um, according to Greek mythology, he is supposed to be the father of Hercules. Um, but some people would... Okay, some of you should know about Hercules. Anyway, the interesting thing is that this, and this temple was placed on a hill. A mighty hill. Next to this temple was the second largest library in the then known world. So that this place that was called Pergamos was not just a center of idol worship. It was also a center of education, of the intellect. You know, so it was a place where religion, politics, and culture all mixed and melted into one. And this was where this church existed. This was where this church existed. That huge temple that was built to Zeus was actually, strictly speaking, the seat of Satan. Because if you see it, 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 it looks like a temple, but it looks like a chair, but it's not really a, a temple. The covering for the temple, in terms of its roof, was the, was the sky itself. Now Jesus, in writing to this church, says, and I've said that he always would use appropriate um, attributes. He says to them, These things said he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now to understand what the sharp sword with two edges means, you have to understand that the Roman soldiers had two types of sword. Sword, rather. There was a, what you know today as a sword. They had that. That's just a long blade. Then they had the, the sword that had two edges. Um, I've been able to do an acetate or a sketch of, those, of, of the, what the sword with two edges looks like. So that they should put them on for you to see. Now this is what the sword, the other way around, the other way around. Yes. This is what basically the sword with two edges actually does look like. That T-shape at the, at the top was what the soldier held with his two hands. And the um, curved area is the area where you had the two sharp blades. It was um, a, a very unique weapon in the sense that it was used by one man to keep as many people at bay as possible. Because all the soldier did was he would hold it and would swing it. Anything that touched it was cut into smithereens. It was so sharp. So that the soldiers, all the Roman soldiers had to do in a battle was once they brought out the instrument called the sword with two edges. They didn't really fight. They just stood in one place, held the, the sword and just started swinging it round. If you dare to come near, it would cut you clean. Very, very clean. And that sword, this, this is just my own type of drawing. But the interesting about the sword is that it actually and really interestingly had the shape <laughs> of the human tongue. So that when we read in the Bible that the word of God 
is sharper than a two-edged sword. Paul was referring to something that was actually in existence. There was actually a sword that could cut through to the bone. You know, not like the butchers have in Nigeria where you take some time before you cut the bone. If this thing touched you, it just sliced you clean. Very, very clean. And Jesus says here that he is the one that has the two-edged sword. And at the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible there refers to the glorified Christ as he who has a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. And we know that the word of God is quick, is powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Bible says it can cut and pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it's the discerner and of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, what we find in the Bible is that they use a real weapon of mass destruction. You know, one sword that could destroy as many people as possible. And they said that the word of God had that same power. That it can cut people into smithereens. It can open you up and show you who you really are. So that the word of God is compared to this. You can, you can, you can take it off now. To this Roman instrument. And Jesus there says that his word. And then the, the interesting thing to understand is that in John chapter 1 verse 1. The Bible tells us that the word of God is God himself. In the beginning was the word and the word was the God. And the word was God. So that what the Bible tries to get across to us is the fact that God is inside his word. And just as this sword was all powerful in holding people at bay, so does the Bible tell us in Psalm 62 verse 11 that power belongs unto God. Power belongs unto God. Listen carefully to me. If power belongs to God, if God is in his word and his word is in him, it means that there is power where? In the word of God. That's why we say, let's try. How many people are still reading cover to cover? How many people are three, four days behind? Don't tell any lie. How many people are up to date? Well, that's not bad. Now, proof of the power of the word of God we find in Mark chapter 11. Let's, let's turn our Bibles to Mark. Remember that Jesus describes himself as he that has his, what, two-edged sword. Turn to Mark 11 and see how powerful the word of God is. Mark 11, verse 13 and 14, and then verse 20. This, the story of the fig tree. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Verse 20. And in the morning 
as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Jesus spoke to the tree. And in this account by Mark, he tells us that the tree died. It didn't just die gradually, it died from the roots. It was dead completely. Why? Because Jesus spoke to it. Now, in verses 21 and 20, 21 to 23, I want us to read that together. Mark 11, 21 to 23. Let's all read that together. One, two, go. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou custest is withered away. And Jesus answered and saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. So that Jesus speaks to the tree. The tree dies. Peter is surprised. And Peter says, This tree that you spoke to, it's dead. And Jesus said to them, you just have faith in God. That if you speak to a situation and you do not doubt it in your heart, that it shall come to pass. He was saying to Peter, Peter, if you had been the one that also said to the tree that he should die, that the tree would die for as long as you, Peter, would, did not doubt it and you had enough faith in, in God. Now that's how powerful each Christian ought to be. That's exactly how powerful we ought to be. In fact, when you think of um, that's for those people who are, are night vigil, the Bible tells us in Psalm 104 that God makes his ministers flaming fire. And we explain that God himself is a, is a consuming fire. And God wants us to be just like him. And in the evening, evening service we looked at deep, collect to deep. And we explained again that, very interestingly, that God is deep. And he expects that those who that he calls his children will also be deep. That's why David says, deep collects to deep. In other words, we are not supposed to be just ordinary human beings. We are supposed to be very powerful people. But we are not. The, the hallmark of the Christian is powerlessness. That's the hallmark of the Christian. Powerlessness. And two main reasons. I mean, we can give a thousand reasons why that is so. But let's look at two good reasons. James chapter 3, 9 to 12. I want us all to read that together. And you see, that's the reason why when you stand in front of a mirror and prophesy and the thing happens, it is not so much that all the time you prophesy it must happen. It is because God is trying to show you as an individual precisely what he has placed in you. That's all. That's why some of those things happen. Because God wants you to just understand that there is so much inside you that he has invested and deposited. But it's we who have a problem. James chapter 3, 9 to 12. Let's read together and see one of the reasons why you can prophesy from now until the end of the earth and nothing will happen. One, two, go. There we bless we God, 
even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no human, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So that the, the place where God has put a lot of the power in the Christian is in the tongue. Because you read the Bible, the Bible tells us from Genesis chapter 1, from verse 2, that God just speaks things and they happened. Because he's a God who calls those things that are not as if they are. Because once he calls them, they happen. That's why we say he speaks and it is, it is done. He commands and he stands fast. That's why when Peter saw Jesus walking on water, Peter challenged him and said, You mean I, I, can, I can walk on water? Jesus said, Why not? And the Bible tells us that Peter walked on water. And both of us, all of us know that even if we saw a human being walking on water, we will not believe. So that there, there's a conditioning of the human mind. There are many things we read in the Bible. We just read them and put them aside. We say that's what Bible is not the real thing. And once you begin to treat the word of God that way, you begin to lose the effect and the power that's in the word. But basically James says here that if a human being uses his tongue negatively and positively, he says then it will have no use of no consequence. He says it's not possible to bless God and to curse man with the same mouth and expect that you will decree a thing and it will happen. And in Proverbs chapter 15 verse 4, the Bible says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. I've explained this, what that simply means. Why do they see these things of Bolaji? Are these things of Okay. What that simply means is that when you talk, there is a crack, as it were, in your spirit, wherein the power of God leaks out. Just leaks out continuously if you talk too much and you talk anyhow. That's why the Bible says a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. So that the power that is available. For many people, they talk it away. For many people, they just use their tongue and destroy the power that God has put at their disposal. Read the whole of James chapter 3. And um, I'm sure you will learn one or two things from there. But let's go back to that letter to the church in Pergamos. We have seen the attribute of Jesus. So Jesus says that he has the ability, his word can cut. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that that word of God is quick, it is powerful, it is sharper than the sword that we have just seen. Now let's look at the approval of Jesus. Jesus said to them, I know thy works. 
and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faith was my faithful matter, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. I know thy works. So that Jesus, one of the things he says continuously to each church is, I know thy works. And I'm hoping that on weekly basis, as we come in here, we keep hearing, I know thy works, that we must begin to know that Jesus knows the things that we do. The ones we do in the secret, the ones we do openly. He says, I know thy works. And where thou dwellest. He says, I know your address. We've talked about that here before, that Jesus knows where each one of us lives. He says, and I know the conditions under which you live. He says, you live practically at the doorstep of Satan. Now, one of the most interesting things about this letter is that this is the only place in Scripture where God allows us to know where Satan, at least at one point in time, lived. Because it's repeated twice. There was a time that the domain of Satan, that is his headquarters, was in this place called Pergamos. Because the Bible says there, it says, where Satan's seat is. And one of the things about Satan as against the divine nature of God is that he can only be at one place at one time. He has not the ability to be at all places at all times. But in this bit of scripture, Jesus tells us that Satan actually has a place where he lived. And that place was Pergamos. And the seat that he's referring to is this temple that was built in honor of the chief of all Greek gods, Zeus. Now, we cannot say that his seat is still there. Since, for some strange reasons, some people actually went, spent money and took the whole seat away and went and relocated it in East Berlin. That's not to say that he's in East Berlin. I don't know. But what we want to deal with is what you must try and understand here today is it is wrong, it is fallacy, it is ignorance to think that Satan is somewhere just there in disguise, flying about. The Bible here tells us that he actually has a physical location where he stays. And that location from what we are reading here today, is a place called Pergamos. Because if you look at that verse 13, it says, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And I say that repetition is always for emphasis, because at the end of that verse, it says again, who was slain among you, where Satan does what? Dwelleth. So that tells us, Clearly, 
for those who are in doubt that Satan is real he doesn't live in the skies he has a place that he chooses and he stays there he can travel from there but he always returns to that particular spot if you see the picture of the temple built to Zeus you will understand what I'm talking about because it's such a strange temple a temple that has no top that the top is actually the, the atmosphere, the sky itself. And the fact that almost everything that God said they should do in the tabernacle was what was going on there. The fire never went out in that place. There was continuous smoke going upwards. And, and what you find interesting, those of us who have been reading cover to cover, you find that we say that God has a throne. And it's called what? The throne of grace. But he sits on his throne and his seat is called what? The mercy seat. So that they built a temple that is just exactly like a seat. It's, I'll, turn, I'll see between now and next Wednesday whether I can get a photograph of it. If I can, I'll let you see it. But the important thing for us today is that Jesus was telling this particular group of Christians, I know that you are going through something that even the church in Smyrna, because we said the church in Smyrna was a suffering church. They really became poor. But this particular church was located right at the doorstep of Satan's domain. But Jesus was saying to them, I know the things you are going through. And the, the relevance to each person who is here today is the church did not relocate. The church did not relocate. One of the biggest things that one knows about the average Nigerian is once you identify that there's danger at home, you just relocate to Lagos. And before you go home, you fast and you pray if you are wise. And, and that really is because we do not know who we are. That's that's it. That's just it. We don't know who we are. And also because we do not live the way we ought to live our lives. So that the things that should be afraid of us, we are afraid of them. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 28, that the whole earth will see you and know that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. That's what the Bible says. So when people see us and they are not afraid of us, it means they can't yet see that we are called by the name of the Lord. Because when you are called by the name of the Lord, you will be a flaming fire. And as we said, what does fire do? It burns. If anything gets in touch with fire, it will burn that thing. Anything. You go near fire, it will burn you. Pure and simple. But... In Nigeria, the fire runs away from things because there's really no fire there. So, I want to encourage everybody who is here today. One of the, the most important things we are looking at here today is that God knows everybody's situation. And sometimes, the, the reason why things just last longer than they should is we do not understand 
that God knows. And therefore, we do not know how to pray. Let me give you a, a joke that I, I, I... Well, not a joke, but something I, I, I said to somebody once. Um, the Bible says, He that findeth a wife does what? Findeth a good thing. In other words, a woman who is looking for a husband should always pray, Lord, let me be found. Not, Lord, give me a husband. Because that's just the word of God. Let me be found. Somebody is around that can find me. Sometimes it's just not having pure basic knowledge of the word of God that creates problems. Because if you understand that God knows precisely what is going on, then you, you should be able to speak to him better about that situation. But most of us don't. Hebrews 13.5, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In verse 6, he says, So that ye may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Fear is Satan's calling card. I've said so before. If you receive it, he will pay you a visit. Job 3.25 For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Fear. The enemy knows that once he can plant fear in you, you will not have the support of God. Because fear shows clearly that there is no faith. And... I hope